0: Welcome to Wired Foresight. I'm Greg Williams. From the moment we wake up and check our phones to when we're listening to our smart speakers or online, our data is being constantly captured by organizations that are part of a hyper-connected data economy. In today's session, we'll explore how, in an era of accelerating technological change, we can reclaim our privacy and ensure that data brokers, tech giants and governments, collect and use data in ways that consumers approve of and are transparent. Our guest today is Carissa Villiers. Carissa is an associate professor in philosophy at the Institute for Ethics in AI and a fellow at Hartford College at the University of Oxford. She works on privacy, technology, moral and political philosophy, and public policy. She's also the author of the recently published book, Privacy is Power. Carissa, welcome. Great to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. I'm a huge fan of Wired.
2: Great. Thank you so much. So as I said, the title of your book, Privacy is Power, and I think the subtitle is really notable, why and how you should take back control of your data. I think what's really powerful about your book is that you don't just outline many of the challenges around data privacy. You also offer some really practical steps for how we can all start thinking about the data economy and ways of protecting individual freedoms and Uh, liberal democracy as a whole. So maybe you could address the first part of of, of that and explain why you chose to write the book and and why does this matter?
1: I've been researching privacy for quite a while now, about six or seven years, and I was extremely unsatisfied uh, with the kind of books I was reading. Many of them were very good, but were only about one aspect. Most of them were very theoretical um, or very technical and the more I read about the topic, the more I grew alarmed at the state of the situation. What we're doing is really unwise to put it very mildly. And I thought the time was uh, perfect for writing a book that was extremely accessible to anyone, even if you've never heard anything about privacy or tech, um, but also to experts uh, who might've not thought about the philosophical underpinnings of privacy. So there are many experts on privacy who work on the law or who work on computer science, and I wanted to write a book about that, explained the big picture of privacy. Why is it important not only for individuals, but also for society? And I also wanted it to be very practical. In academia, uh, our job is kind of to criticize what's going on. So it's very easy to just um, say the negative, You know what's wrong with this view and what's wrong with the other. And it's not that common to propose something. But here we face a practical problem. Um, we have a huge problem in our hands right now. We need to solve it now before it's too late and somebody needs to propose something. So I wanted a book that was also useful uh, for policy but also for individuals in that I tried to suggest what you can do as, as a citizen and as, as part of somebody in a community uh, to help protect privacy.
2: Yeah, and I think the urgency really comes through very, very well in the book, the fact that we need to act now uh, as as, this is an ongoing situation that is obviously only going to accelerate as we move forward into uh, this data economy. So I think that most wide readers are going to be aware of the way in which our data is being tracked online by search engines or social networks in any website we, we visit whatsoever. I'd like to get your sense of, are there more insidious ways that this is happening that people are largely unaware of?
1: Yes, there are. And it's happened to me even like in workshops with very, very uh, expert people uh, in the room, that even experts forget about these things because data is very abstract. Yes, you know your data is being collected, but what does that mean? So I'll give you like a couple of examples of of really surprising things that happen uh, in the way our data is collected, but also a couple of examples of how that translates in your life. Um, So a couple of examples is, um, so for instance, if you have a smart car, and when you get in the car, uh, not only is your location being tracked, which maybe you can imagine, but also how fast or slow do you drive, and very surprising things like the kind of music you hear. And for instance, bankers are buying that information off of Spotify to try to figure out whether, I don't know, maybe you might be depressed and that might influence whether you can pay back a loan. And even your seat tracks your weight and that could get uh, sold to, for instance, insurance companies. And another example is uh, the use of audio beacons. So companies want to know who you are and that you own a particular laptop and a particular phone and that you live somewhere. So say you wake up in the morning and you're listening to ads um, on the radio, those ads have audio beacons that your phone picks up. So say you listen about, I don't know, some wonderful pairs of shoes on, uh, on the radio or whatever it is, and then you look them up on your laptop and you find them nearest store uh, to your house and then you visit the store. Uh, through these audio beacons that will also be broadcasted in the store, the company can know that you heard that um, radio ad in the morning, you looked it up on your laptop, and then you went to your local store uh, to kind of figure who, who you are. And there are many other examples about how our data gets collected in, in very invasive ways and very invisible ways. And what does that mean? It means that companies know things like who your friends and family are, what are your sexual uh, practices and tendencies, what are your political leanings, um, whether you drink and how much you drink, how much you eat, how much you weigh, with whom you sleep, whether you're having an affair, And uh, really sensitive things that get used against you in you know, all sorts of decisions, whether you get a loan, an apartment, a job. And this is all underground. So you never get to see what happens, you never get to object to it, you never get to correct data that might be wrong, you never get any kind of report about it.
2: And you use the example of someone getting in a smart car and that data being, uh, being, being being used in a certain way. Some people might argue, insurance companies, for instance, that by having access to that data, they could provide superior services to their customers do you think there are uses of data that can be you know seen as positive and actually giving something back to to consumers as well
1: definitely probably the best case is medicine we all want better medicine and just in order for your doctor to know what's wrong with you you have to tell them certain kind of personal data that's that's a no-brainer but i think it's very easy when data is not regulated uh, to use as an excuse to collect all kinds of data and then misuse it. So for instance, in the case of insurance companies, um, it used to be the case that insurance meant that you pool a group of people and that's a way of pooling risk. So you have like statistical experts and you know roughly X amount of people are gonna get sick. So you calculate a prime and everybody shares that risk. But today it's more and more the case that individuals have to bear their own risk. Such that insurance, I mean, it's not clear that it's insurance anymore. So if you could judge on the base of say your genetics because a cousin of yours did a genetic test and you don't even know about it, but that's gonna make you pay um, a higher premium, that's not your fault. And in a way it's kind of undermining this social fabric of trust and cooperation because you're paying your own way.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think let's—I mean—it'd be good just to sort of step back for a moment. And you know, we hear this phrase "surveillance economy" a lot. I mean, it's effectively based primarily on advertising models, right? Do you think that maybe that the key moments was back in you know whenever it was, I think the year two thousand when Google, Google launched AdWords and fundamentally kind of realigned itself from its kind of original mission, which was all around the users, to actually aligning itself with with advertisers.
1: I think that's exactly right. That's how it started. And it was very unfortunate because Google knew that this was a conflict of interest. And originally, they hadn't wanted to rely on ads precisely for that reason. And then they couldn't find a different way of funding themselves. And they gave in and essentially betrayed their users because suddenly their loyalty was with the publishers. And even though um, there was already some kind of data economy back then in the sense that some some personal data was exchanged and sold, Uh, it had never been used... So this scale and and never so much data and never it had never been put together quite in the way that google managed to do it so it was it, it was a game changer and everybody followed
2: And do you think that you know, it's interesting some of the examples you've given it seems to me that like yes there are very precise um you know levels of data that we can get we can get into and and, and um that the people who are part of this surveillance economy really do know very intimate details of people's lives but is it also the case that a lot of this data really is is fundamentally pretty low quality data that major decisions are being made by you know whether you can whatever it is get get a, get a loan or uh, whether you qualify for something is being made effect, uh, fundamentally on pretty low quality uh, thresholds?
1: Yeah, that's true, and, and there's a very kind of dangerous paradox because on the one hand, the data is. Uh, precise enough that it could, for example, be enough to sway an election, because you only need to have a minimal effect when you're dealing with millions of people to do that. But on the other hand, it's not accurate enough to make fair decisions about individuals. And there there are at least two reasons for why the data is not accurate enough. One is that... Companies don't have an incentive to have enough of accurate data. Let's suppose that you're trying to judge whether somebody's a smoker um, and try to base a, a premium, um, an insurance premium on, on the basis of that data. And say you have an algorithm that gets it 75% right, uh, 75% of the times right. That's enough for you because that's already cost saving for you as a company. But of course, for the individual, it's very unfair because there will be um, 25% of people who are not smokers and are being judged as smokers and we need to change the incentives. The second reason why personal data is very often inaccurate is that personal data expires pretty quickly and there's no system correcting data. So how many times you've liked something on Facebook and then suddenly you don't like it anymore because maybe the politician you liked um, did something stupid and changed their views or maybe you know you were, you were a teenager and you liked bad music and you don't like bad music anymore but you never go back and click unlike um, and you change address, you change jobs, it happens all the time. So that data expires quickly and you're judged on the basis of all data.
2: So we're seeing kind of obviously increasing, uh, you know, attempt at uh, regulation both in, in Washington and in Brussels and uh, maybe uh, here in the UK. I'm interested to get your sense of one of the ones that we're hearing a lot about, which is the changes that, that Google is, is, is making uh, to Chrome. Um, it's ditching third party cookies. Is that going to make a big difference, do you think?
1: No, it's not, this is a very controversial move by Google. Um, Many people are criticizing it because essentially Google has figured out a way in which they can get all the data they used to get from cookies in a different way that nobody else can. And essentially the criticism is that they're trying to block other companies from having um, certain kinds of data. And in that way, kind of um, make, make sure that they still have the dominance when it comes to personal data. And even though the methods they're using are more privacy protecting, they're not privacy protecting enough. So right. you could still um, infer all kinds of sensitive things about people, especially with regards, there are many questions, but with regards to, for instance, um, websites that use a login attached to Google. So that's very uh, personal. And then you can uh, make inferences um, regarding the groups that th- this person is included in. So. It doesn't look like it's going to be good news for privacy or for um, antitrust. And what Google is trying to do is not rethink its business model. It's just saying, OK, how do we rework this um, into it like looking good, but we still have the same business model that depends on the exploitation of personal data? And that's a mistake.
2: So I know it's an obvious question and everyone must ask you this. So, so which search engine do you use, Carissa?
1: I use DuckDuckGo um, okay. because it doesn't yeah, work like that.
2: Okay, and that, there are other search engines are available. So uh, in your book, you've write, you write about the role of data brokers, which I think is a really interesting area. Can you just get into that a little bit? Tell us who they are, how they operate.
1: I call them data vultures uh, (laughs) because these are companies that want to have a file on every user on the internet, and they collect all the data they can on you. It can include things like your purchasing history, your browsing history, social media data, data about your credit records, your medical records, all kinds of things. And then they sell it essentially to the highest bidder. In many cases, it's other companies like insurance companies, banks, uh, prospective employers, but in some cases, there have been scandals of them selling it to uh, so ex-abusive partners or even fraudsters, which is just um, unbelievable. Um, these data brokers um, compile lists about people as well. So not only do they sell individual files, but also lists. And the lists that they compile are incredibly Problematic. So they include things like um, people who have been victims of rape, uh, people who suffer from HIV, people who suffer from impotence, from erectile dysfunction, all these kinds of extremely sensitive categories, people who have lost a child. And it just seems morally repugnant that we allow companies to profit from that kind of knowledge. Um, It just seems extremely problematic. And it's a bit like companies using our vulnerabilities to get to us. And that seems and um, something that we shouldn't be allowing. So that's why I argue that we shouldn't allow personal data to be sold and bought because we incentivize these kind of practices.
2: We have the Data Protection Act and GDPR. Are they not enough?
1: They're not. I don't want to uh, kind of badmouth them because the GDPR for instance was was an amazing achievement. And at that time, I don't think that we could have come up with something better because of all the pressure that there was and because it was so innovative and so on, but it's obviously not enough. At least two reasons are kind of just blaringly obvious. One is that we get privacy scandals, privacy scandals all the time, every week. So clearly, I mean, not enough is, is, is happening. And secondly, it's ridiculous that most of the burden is on the shoulders of individuals. I am so annoyed by clicking no to uh, cookies every time. It's just yeah. totally inefficient. If, if, And I have to click it because they, they can't remember it. So every time it's the same. The default should be no data collection. Defaults are really important. And that way, if somebody wants their data collected, then that website is justified in remembering them and they don't have to click every time. So, if only for for those two reasons, no, the GDPR is not enough.
2: So clearly, you know, the consent that uh, that we're offering uh, around our data it isn't fit for purpose. Um, This is only, of course, going to become more challenging in the coming years. But one area which we're seeing, you know, normally we we use the word surveillance, you know, around the data economy. Clearly, cameras are being embedded into all kinds of objects. We're seeing a creep towards facial recognition in devices from most of the large hardware manufacturers. Uh, What do you think needs to happen in order for us to stay in control of, of that data?
1: I think it's very hard to stay in control of data. Data flows like water. And so one important thing is to ban trades in personal data, which includes sharing. So sometimes companies don't sell it, but they share it in exchange for other kinds of data, and that that amounts to the same thing. I think we also have to ban uh, personalized content and ads. The advantages that they give us are very, very, very small, and the disadvantages are huge And we have to ban certain kinds of surveillance equipment that are just too dangerous for anonymity. One of the fantastic advancements of the city, the city as a technology, was to allow people anonymity. Before then, you lived in a small village, everybody knew you, and it was impossible to say or do something in an anonymous way. And the city brings this amazing opportunity to walk in the crowd and nobody knows you. And that has been amazing for innovation, uh, for creativity, and if we, plague the city with identity uh, or identifying surveillance, cameras, and other uh, detection techniques, we are undermining something that has been a fantastic advancement in in society. Also, importantly, the ability to protest anonymously. The moment you have facial recognition, that goes down the drain. And there are very few people who will be brave enough to say, I'm going to protest nonetheless
2: i think as sort of the data collection economy has, has has grown over the past few years i think most people most individuals now are realizing you know that they are the product in the famous line and i'm just interested to to know from your research like do you think that awareness is growing among consumers Because of the number of bad experiences people are having, whether that's, you know, um, hacks or online shaming or unwanted targeting, are we creating an environment, do you think, in which people are relearning almost the, the value of privacy? That's
1: exactly right. I think we forgot it for a while. We got convinced by Zuckerberg and others that privacy was something of the past that we had evolved. And now we realize that privacy is as important or more important than ever and that we're losing it. So in a recent survey I carried out with my colleague, Sharon Brook, we discovered that about 92% of people have had some kind of bad privacy experience online. Sometimes it's related to um, theft of identity or sometimes it's uh, public humiliation or even being the target of spyware. And the more we have those experiences or the more we know people who have had a bad experience, the more we realize how we could get hurt. And very important are collective instances of harm um, because very very importantly, these are mostly invisible. So if you are the victim of an algorithm, most of the times you won't even know about it. So when a lot of people are and it gets out into the public, it's really an important opportunity. So two examples are the Cambridge Analytica scandal, in which it was clear that a political firm was trying to undermine democracy. And another example is in the UK with the A-levels and how young people realised that their future could be compromised by an algorithm that hasn't been validated, that hasn't been... uh, subjected to a randomized control trial and that's scary.
2: And we've talked a lot about individuals but clearly there's a you know a big threat to c- civil society. Um how do you think about the steps we need to put in place in order to protect obviously not just our own privacy but also the, the bigger sort of like the, the bigger picture, the society is almost kind of private by default, and, and we can protect sort of some of the institutions that maybe are being eroded uh, by this free flow, this, this water-like uh, behavior of, of data, as you describe it.
1: Yeah, talking about um, kind of collective, even in the most capitalist societies, we don't allow votes to be sold because that undermines democracy, and for the same reason, we shouldn't allow personal data to be sold. And one of the things that I argue for in my book is that. This idea that privacy is individual is very misleading. Um, This this idea that, well, you know, it's like, well, you like chocolate, I like vanilla, and it's just a personal preference. And if you're not a criminal, then you have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, is totally wrong. Privacy is important first and foremost because it's a collective concern and a political concern, as the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, suggests. And one of the things that brings me hope that the data economy can be regulated is that intelligence agencies and governments are realizing how much of a national security issue this data economy is. It's just a ticking bomb to have that kind of personal data out there. And China wants it and Russia wants it. And we've already had a lot of um, examples in which uh, there are hacks to even like um, normal apps and, and that they're trying to get to the personal data of people and just As an example, if hackers were to hack only 10% of the electrical appliances in a country and turn them on at the same time, they could bring down the national grid. And you can imagine, like just imagine having a pandemic and being uh, cut off from electricity. That would be disastrous. It could bring a country to its knees. And it's not hypothetical. Um, The UK uh, grid has uh, endured attacks during the pandemic. And just like academics have known for decades that a pandemic was coming and that they had warned us and we didn't listen, we know there's going to be a cyber massive um, attack, a, cyber, a massive cyber attack. And what's the relationship between privacy and, and cybersecurity? We have built the internet to be insecure so that we can collect personal data. Yeah, And that's yeah, yeah. a ticking bomb. So that gives me hope that governments will be worried enough to change it.
2: Um. I want to get to um, some, some of the questions uh, from uh, people watching uh, this session. Uh, but one final question for, from me, Carissa. Um, it, you've got a lot of solutions, a lot of um, uh, you know, um, really practical steps that we could take in order to protect privacy. What, what do you think the data economy will, will look like in maybe, I don't know, five years, assuming the changes that you'd like to see are, are implemented? How do you think it should work?
1: So I'm, in a sense, I'm really optimistic because I think this state of affairs is totally unsustainable. It's like the Wild West and it's going to come crashing down. I'm hoping that we manage to regulate it before something really bad happens, like a genocide in the West or something like that. Um, so if, if we implement these changes, on the one hand, things superficially doesn't, don't look that different. We can have cutting edge tech. Uh, we can have appliances and all kinds of things. Um, but underneath it all, It looks like uh, data is not collected by default. You have to sign up, opt in, to have your data collected. And even then, there are certain kinds of personal data that you're not allowed to give out, because it contains data about others, such as your genetic data. Uh, Data is routinely deleted. And all data is um, um, all all the time um, being updated. And you get the chance to access all of your data. You get the chance to know where your data is and how it's being used and to correct it whenever there's an inaccuracy. Um, There aren't any data brokers. I I don't see how they're good for society at all. (laughs) And businesses like Facebook and Google, if they want to survive in the long term, they have to change their business model. In the past, we've already... Ban business models that are just too toxic for society. And I make this analogy about how personal data is as toxic as asbestos, and we we need to be very careful with it. It doesn't mean that we we can't use it, it means that we need to be extremely careful with it. Um, So this business model of selling personal data disappears.
2: So Carissa, let's move on to some of the questions that are, that are coming in. Um, I don't know if there's any one that maybe has caught your eye or I, I could maybe, uh, uh, there's a couple that I think are quite interesting I might like you to choose. get your views on. So uh, anything that's catching your eye or shall I? Uh, you, you choose. I think I think there's an interesting one uh, from an anonymous attendee, and it's talking about authoritarian and totalitarian states are obviously interested in collecting personal data beyond their, their own state borders um do you think that you know personal data privacy should become part of almost de- diplomatic policy of, of, of liberal de- uh, democracies so that it becomes inbuilt into sort of the way that we interact with with other nations that maybe we need international accords around this
1: absolutely i love that question and i'm actually writing about that right now today um i think it's exactly the right moment to rekindle all, all all the alliances, in particular between the UK, the US and Europe. Uh, but also there are many other countries trying to regulate big tech like Australia and Japan, New Zealand. And it's something that we have to work with together because data isn't uh, something that stays in a country. It just doesn't happen. And we have incredibly important rivals who are extremely good at hacking. So we need to come together and have something like um, a human rights a declaration but regarding data and ai because it's just around the corner it's on us um with regards to to, to privacy and it's it's something really urgent and that if we don't do it our democracies are really in danger
2: another question is really about how consumers individuals can try and affect changes in in policy how can we try and change the way that uh, you know the tech giants collect data about about us what can we do on an individual level
1: we actually have a lot of power because all these companies depend on our data and you'd be surprised how worried they are about your opinion and so companies like google and apple and microsoft and all of them are monitoring the web to see what people think about these things and even authoritarian governments i have really good sources on this are very worried about people um, rebelling against the system so we don't need like 90 percent of people to do this we only need five ten of people for things to radically change. So what you can do, there's all kinds of things, but first and foremost, choose a laptop and a phone uh, from a company that doesn't earn their key primarily through personal data because they will always have a conflict of interest. Um, Choose privacy-friendly products. So instead of using Google search, use DuckDuckGo. It's really fantastic. It used to be not that good, but um, it's getting better and better. And sometimes it's, it's, it's much better than Google Search, actually.
2: We, we published a very long feature on it in Wired a couple of, a, a year or so ago by Wired's uh, Matt Burgess. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting search engine. Sorry, I interrupted you, Chris.
1: Definitely. Instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. Instead of using Gmail, use ProtonMail. There are all kinds of alternatives out there. Um, protect other people's privacy, it's really important. So if you get a message that's funny, but that clearly violates someone's privacy, don't re-forward it, don't don't post it online. Um, Don't post pictures of others without asking for their consent. Uh, Contact your political representatives, tell them that you're worried about this topic, pressure them, ask them uh, to read books about this, to be well-informed, ask them about what policies they're implementing. Just do anything you can and know that you'll fail. Um, Protecting privacy is really difficult in the digital age. But even if you fail, uh, first, you can protect yourself enough that you can save yourself from a case of identity theft, which is already an amazing thing. But also, even if you fail, um, there's an expressive element that's really important. You are telling companies and businesses and and governments that you are not okay with it. And that matters because in two days time or two months or two years, when there's a inquiry and you know the data protection agencies looking to a company, if they find emails of customers like you saying, hey, I'm not accepting your data collection. I want you to send my data. I want you to delete it. Um, that creates a paper trail that is very important.
2: Carissa, some really great practical steps there. Thank you. And that actually, I think answered quite a few of the questions that uh, we didn't have time to answer. Thank you out there for sending in the questions some some really great ones there. I think that Carissa has, has managed to touch on uh, nearly all the subject matter that you've raised. So thank you, Carissa, for your time today, for sharing your insights. Um, if you haven't read Carissa's book, Privacy is Power, please do go ahead uh, and order a, a copy. And if you enjoyed the session, please do check out the rest of the Wired Foresight series, which includes discussions with Ipsos Mori's CEO, Ben Page, on what life could look like in 2025, uh, Sana Karangagi on the AI roadmap, Shopify's head of EMEA, Shimona Meta on the future of retail, All are available at wired.co.uk. A final thank you again to Carissa. Thank you so much to all of you for joining the session. Much appreciated. Uh, Thank you. Stay well and we'll see you soon.
1: Thank you.
0: If you're enjoying this series, please do give us a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the Wired community. Thank you so much.